it's been way too long and I really miss you. I love you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Top fives and deep dives with Tata PTM. 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 My favorite director would have to be Martin Scorsese. What's up, guys and gals? Welcome to Top Fives and Deep Dives. Got me, Justin, over here in LA. We've got Mike over in London. What's up, dude? Yo, what's up, man? Nothing, nothing. I'm uh, looking forward to the app today. It's a, it's a big one. It is a big one. We've been talking about it for quite some time. Maybe so long, maybe even before the podcast. But uh, today, going to be doing top five Quentin Tarantino films. It's a big one. And we, you know, like you said, we've had this on deck, uh, but we were, you know, inspired to get this one out there now because Tarantino has a new project, which is not a film. Surprisingly, it is a novel. It is the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novel where he is essentially, as he has said himself, he's not just taking the script and putting it into novel form. He is using the bones of the story and we're going to learn a lot more about all these characters that were introduced in the film, Rick Dalton, Cliff Booth. And it's, it's just going to be great. I've, I've heard good things. Mike and I know are both going to pick it up. It comes out June 29th. So in a, in just a couple days and, uh, yeah, you, that's, that's what inspired us to release this episode. Now we've got also a great special special guest on deck who we are going to introduce very shortly but first we're going to talk about a couple things going to start by quickly talking about our patreon which we just launched in the past month you can find the link in all of our social media profiles there's lots of bonus content on there if you want to sign up we'd be very very grateful and one of the perks you get a shout out on the pot. And so this week, we have to give a massive shout out to one of our great friends from college, from our days at Boston University, Patrick Herwick. Pat, thank you so much, dude. Always, always such a supporter of anything that I've done, by the way. And I just, I, I love this guy so much. We have a... Uh, well, it's been a few years now, but we typically do an annual trip together and uh, miss you, buddy. Thanks so much for, for signing up. We love you, Pat. Yeah, we really do. And uh, now, last last order of business before Tarantino, our spotlight of the week, which is the hitman's wife's bodyguard, which just hit theaters recently. Ryan Reynolds, Samuel L. Jackson, Selma Hayek, Talk to me about this movie, Mike. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I had not seen the original. It just, it didn't really jump out at me. And, and honestly, I didn't hear that great of stuff in terms of reviews. So I think we were both kind of surprised that a sequel was being released. Um, so I quick went, saw the original, sort of had what I thought 
you know, kind of verified what I initially thought that it was, you know, it was perfectly fine, but didn't really do much for me. Uh, then I went to see this one like 10 minutes after I finished the original, obviously in the theater. Um, and I thought this was really fun. Uh, I, I couldn't believe, you know, how much better I thought it was than the original. Uh, you know, the jokes are funnier. There's more Selma Hayek, uh, which, which I think works. Um, you know, we get a little, I, I don't even want to say actually, but we get a little special guest guest appearance by a very famous actor that I thought landed pretty well. But yeah, I just thought overall it was just just much better, better crafted, better jokes, better chemistry, uh, and and a big improvement. I couldn't agree more. It's you, you truly. I feel like we had the exact same thought on this film. It was an improvement over the original. A ton of fun, worth going to see in the theater, especially because there's not that much that's come out yet, and this is just a great, fun action flick to to get you back in the in the theater seats. That's that's pretty much all I have to say, Mike. Yeah, that's it. Let's yeah. let's get to the the big topic. Let's do it. Top five Tarantino films. An episode that we've been waiting to do since the day we started this podcast. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a very special guest, dear friend of mine out here in Los Angeles, and TV producer, podcast producer, also like. Mike and I, a fellow New Englander, Nick Masick. Hello, my friend. Hey, how we doing? Good. How you doing? Terrific. I really appreciate you guys having me on. I cannot think of a better podcast, a better episode to be here for. I mean, th- this really is like, this is one of the big ones. And I feel like we have the right person on to help us get through this. Very, very excited to have you. Um, So for everyone listening, we're going to try out a bit of a new format today. So Tarantino, he has 10 films that he's directed thus far. So what we're going to do, we're going to go through each film one by one, chronological order, starting with Reservoir Dogs, ending with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The three of us are going to talk a little bit about the film, debate how we feel about it, and at the end of each film, we're going to give you our ranking out of 10. At the end of it all, the three of us will recap our top five, and then we're going to calculate the average of our three and give you our definitive top five list of Tarantino's filmography. Sound good to everyone? I'm honestly nervous. That, that, that sounds, yeah. But yeah, very excited. Very excited. <laughs> nervous I excitement. Let's, let's make yeah. some waves. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. So if you're familiar with Tarantino, we know where we're starting. 1992 Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs is, to give you a very quick synopsis, it's about six criminals They're each strangers to one another. They don't know each other. They're hired to carry out a robbery. They all have different names. It's just like, they're just like colors. So like Mr. Pink. Anyway, the heist, they're ambushed by police. They end up rendezvousing at a warehouse after and have to figure out who the traitor is in their midst, who set them up. So that's the basic plot. 
We've got Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, Harvey Keitel, Chris Penn, Tarantino's in it himself. And this is where it all started. So what 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 were your feelings on this one, boys? For me, I mean, this is I, I, just right how it starts with with the Madonna talk with Like a Virgin. It's just such a such a thing that will come to define Tarantino pulling in different different parts of pop culture and how he makes his sort of if we could call them postmodern films. So many awesome characters, such a great take on a heist movie. Um, really, really creative. Obviously, town like you said. I mean, this was basically right instantly made him into sort of a, a celebrity because of this movie. I think for me, I would say on my rewatch, you know, we, we should mention we all did full rewatches. I'd never done it like this before, and I think on some level, I'd seen this one too recently because when you first see it, it's really sort of unlike anything out there, um, and it has a major effect on you. But I think I've watched it enough times that it's it's somewhat diminished. But that's obviously, you know, I mean, you're really looking for things to hate about it because it's a fucking fucking great movie. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, I think that this is, um, you know, you you said it exactly right. It, the it's a great movie in its time. It was cutting edge from the way that it was structured to the way that it was. Uh, you know, that, that all the characters just pop right off the screen. It's big, they're brash. And, uh, but when you compare it to, you have to look at it in that lens. You, you have to see it in its time. And the fact that it really did set uh, the tone for, for a, a generation of, of filmmakers. But that said, uh, things have moved so far past that now. Um, that it's difficult to go back and watch it a second. Like it's, it's great on first viewing. Second viewing is when it gets a little spotty um, because it just, it, I'm not sure it completely holds up. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to completely follow on this train that you guys have started and say, I agree with you. It, it's obviously no doubt, extremely influential film started it all you can see the basis of so many great things that Tarantino has gone on to do since, but it definitely rewatchability wise. It's not there for me. There's some great pieces to it. And I feel like it's the bones of classic Tarantino. We see everything that's about to come, but for me, it doesn't have the punch that a lot of his other films do. I think maybe we should we should also just mention quickly, you know, this is he doesn't have a starter film, right? This is his first film. It was made sort of punk rock style. Um, you know, this is really his voice getting thrown in there. So it's an amazing, amazing achievement. And if he surpassed it with other films later in his career, I mean, that that makes sense. It absolutely is amazing achievement for a first film. I think it's going to be a pretty uh I'm not sure exactly what all our rankings are going to be, but the fact that we all have a slightly negative connotation towards it, I feel like is going to be an unpopular opinion. Bit of a hot take. I know a lot of people love this film and put it near the top. And again, I don't know about you two. I love every film he's ever made, but I have levels of love. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's really well said. Yeah. 
Um, this is, you know, it, it's it's a great movie, and and when you look at it in the lens of of when it was made and and what is to come in his career, yeah, it does have some really great qualities to it. But it just, um, yeah. Well, I think it's time. What is your ranking on Reservoir Dogs, Mike? You know, I think I started this off on like a negative path, I, but but that wasn't really my intention because this is my my number five film. <laughs> I still like it. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, what I'm saying is, I mean, like you said, we're, we're splitting hairs here with films that, I I mean, we'll see exactly how we feel about them, but pretty much I love all of his films. So you have to look for weaknesses and, and there are some there, but I still love this film a lot. Just makes the bottom of my top five. Okay. Interesting. Based on uh, how you set us up there. Yeah, I mean, at one point I actually had it at number five too, and then and as I was refiguring things, I I, I did move it down a little bit. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's the fact that it's a really great story, uh, really compelling the way it's constructed, but it just doesn't have the character. Like it's it's got rich characters, but it doesn't have actions aren't really motivated, and and, and you you know I, I think that it's a little dated in that regard. Uh, I've got it at number eight. All right, I'll take you I'll take you guys a step further. After the full rewatch, I can say this was my least enjoyable rewatch. This is number 10 for me. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Okay. Yeah. I know that's going to be a hot take for some Tarantino fans out there. Again, I respect that it was the opening chapter. But Nick, I felt like you hit the nail on the head saying he's got great ideas in there and he has some great characters, but it just... it doesn't feel as fleshed out as all his other worlds do. And I know that to some people might be a part of the strength of this, this first chapter in his career, but there's something about it that doesn't get me the way that all of his other films do. Wow. I can't believe I was like worried that I had it too low at five. I thought you guys were going to berate me, but uh, I will. Yeah. I mean, I think Nick has kind of said it, but when you watch this film, if you haven't seen it somehow, or if you're doing a rewatch, I think you have to imagine yourself, you know, at Cannes in 92, Mm -hmm. seeing this film and it kind of blowing your mind and you will, you'll get a better, you'll get more enjoyment out of doing it that way. Keep that in mind because it is a great film, but not, not going to make our top five list. That's for sure. Doesn't seem like it. Does not seem like it. Should we, should we move on? Yeah, it's time. For 1994's Pulp Fiction. Very, very, very famous film. Possibly his most famous. We've got John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, Tim Roth, Ving Rhames. The list goes on. And so Pulp Fiction, to give you just a little intro, and it's very hard to describe. It's the story of two hitmen... Their gangster boss, his actress wife, a struggling boxer, a couple armed robbers in a diner, and all of the plot lines they they weave together. And that's pretty much all I can say about it because it's a very complex storyline in how it's told. Nick, you want to start us off on this one? Yeah. I mean, look, this is a masterclass in, in multilinear storytelling, and it is such a rich movie it's got such big characters so you know just razor sharp dialogue i mean it's this this is quintessential tarantino not to mention the fact it's a cultural icon i mean it it was so big in its time not just for a single character or a single scene 
it was enormous for the experience of seeing this movie. And, and I don't, you know, that, that is something in and of itself. You know, if, if Reservoir Dogs was cool and, you know, this brought it to another level of just slick, cool filmmaking. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is truly, truly a masterpiece. I've said on previous pods that I think he has three masterpieces. Um, this is the first one and, and everything's on fire. I mean, the characters are incredibly, you know, they're huge in terms of being well-written, but also, I mean, I think this is Travolta's best movie ever. I think this is Uma Thurman's best performance ever. Maybe even Bruce's best performance ever, to be honest. So many different references. I mean, the music is incredible. And I will say, unlike Reservoir Dogs, and, and this is, you know, it has to do with the quality of the film as well, but it had been just the right amount of time since I seen this. And it was almost like I was watching it for the first time again. And the first hour, not, not that it falls off a cliff from there or anything like that, but the first hour of this film, maybe my favorite hour of any film ever, honestly, after rewatching it. I was just, even though I'd seen it so many times, it just blew me the fuck away. Absolutely incredible. I mean, you guys have said most of what I could say. It is next level filmmaking, a masterpiece. Everyone is on fire. Everything back then, how he was doing this, it was just no one had ever put out a movie like this. The way that they go through the different chapters and it's bouncing around in time I mean, the different characters, the pop culture of it all, the dialogue. It is this movie is everything that Tarantino has come to be known for. It's so good. There's so many iconic scenes, iconic lines. And that's the thing. You put it on today. And unlike Reservoir Dogs, which feels a bit dated to me, this to me doesn't feel dated at all. It just fucking hits the spot just as much as it did back when it came out in 94. Yeah. And it, it culturally, and I think the reason for that is because it's culturally never left us. It is still something that we can all go back to and look at and have, you know, a, a shared sense of, of this experience of this movie. And it's rare. I mean, it's a top 10 in American cinema. A hundred percent. And with that said, where does everyone rank it? I, have a feeling that I know where you guys are putting it, but for me, this is number two. Okay, favorite hour of a uh, of film ever, and it gets number two. I can't wait to hear what number one. Well, there's another hour and a half after that, so not, not like that's bad. <laughs> it is number. It is number two. Okay, uh, I have got it at number two as well. Ooh, wow. Okay. okay, I've got it at number one. I mean, that's that feels right. You know, yeah. somewhere between yeah. one and two feels pretty much right. That feels right. No, you, I, I don't think you can fault anyone for loving this movie. I mean, it, it has all the elements that are deserving of of celebration. No, I think the opposite. You can fault people for not loving this movie. I, I normally am just, you know, films are films. <laughs> Everybody likes different stuff. Taste is subjective. You know, I like a lot of garbage films. So, but yeah, I mean, if you don't like Pulp Fiction, wow, that would be a strong stance. I could not agree more if someone tells me they don't like pulp fiction i immediately get a little bit skeptical yeah it's definitely sus <laughs> yes um but anywho so we've talked about the masterpiece itself time for film number three in quentin's rich filmography 
1997's Jackie Brown. We've got Pam Greer in the in the in the lead role. We've got again Samuel L. Jackson, who as we're gonna you know find out becomes one of Quentin's mainstays. We've got Robert Forster, rest in peace to him now. We've got Michael Keaton, Robert De Niro. We have a small little role by Chris Tucker, Bridget Fonda. So Jackie Brown, to give you a little little plot line, Pam Greer plays Jackie Brown. She's a flight attendant. Um, she's busted for smuggling some money and unknowingly a little bit of some drugs for her arms dealer boss. And so two agents attempt to recruit her to help bring down her boss, who is played by Samuel L. Jackson. And then it goes from there. I won't, I don't want to give anything else away. Mike, lead us off on this one. What do you think about Jackie Brown? Yeah, so, so Jackie Brown is, it's a, I think it's the film that I've seen the least um, of all of them. But I yeah, obviously rewatched it this week. I like it a lot. I think, um, you know, a big, big fan of Pam Greer um, and, and black exploitation films in general, largely probably because of Tarantino, you know, kind of pushing the genre. Um, but yeah, I think she's one of the best characters, Jackie Brown, uh, that, that Tarantino creates. Um, obviously this is, you know, adapted. So, you know, you could take that for what you will. But um, I also just loved just watching Bobby De Niro just get high all the time with Bernie Fonda. That's just absolutely <laughs> fucking hilarious. Is just ripping the ball. Hmm. Um, I, I will say, though, this is one that it's lower on my list. I won't tell you where. And this is one that like this this hurts me to be where it is on my list. Like some things have to be towards the bottom. Um, that's just how it works. And this is there, but I don't feel good about it. Uh, that's really interesting to hear you say that because um, I actually have it quite high. Um, and I, and for me, the fact of the matter is, or, you know, for, for me, this movie is some of the best, and, and probably because it is adapted um, from Elmore Leonard's uh, Rum Punch, that this one has really, really full characters that uh, it's their emotions, it's their choices that drive things. Um, so many of Tarantino's movies are really circumstantial that, you know, he puts great characters just in an environment where shit's going to happen anyway. This one feels so well-crafted. It's paced well. It's got great moments, um, great characters. And I just, I think it's one of his most complete works. I agree with you, Nick. I think that it's very underrated in his, in the scope of, I actually, there's a few films of his I think are underrated. We'll get there. But I think Jackie Brown is overlooked a lot. It's a lot, well, I don't want to say a lot different than his other films. It has some actors that only show up once in his films, like Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton. But it's, it's sort of a more subtle storyline than other films of his. And it's, it's really good. It's really tight. I don't think there's that much I can fault Jackie Brown for. I think it's got the clever dialogue we love from him, like the inner the, sort of the interplay between Samuel and Robert De Niro is awesome. Samuel looks absolutely ridiculous in this one. And I'll say this, it's it's so hard because again, it's like different levels of love, but I'd say Jackie Brown for me falls somewhere in the middle. I think it's one that I always recommend people to see because I find that it's tends to be the one 
the most people I've talked to about Tarantino haven't seen. And I think that's a big mistake. I, I will say that this one for me, uh, just showing my age a little bit, this was the first Tarantino movie that I saw in the theater. Uh, I did see it with both my parents. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I think I would have been like 13 or 14. Oh, yeah, um, that might be a little young. I love it. Yeah, it was a, it was a little young. Um, this one also gives us uh, Tarantino's first uh, close up on a foot. Won't be the last. But uh, yeah, I, look, I, I think this, you know, the fact that Robert Forrester's character is entirely motivated by feelings. I don't know if we have, you know, his his, his feelings for Jackie Brown. I don't know if we have another lead character in any of Tarantino's works where that is uh, the case, that, that they're completely motivated by emotion. I was going to, maybe I'll bring that up later. I think, I think you're right though. And it, it doesn't make him a, a fantastic character and just casting Robert Forrester in that role um, is, is pretty awesome. And he's so good in it. Yeah. So good. Talking about motivation, I maybe, maybe Django a bit. But we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Let's. So I'll, I'll go first with my ranking. Okay. Uh, especially since I've already told you I don't feel good about it, uh, and I I have it at eight. And I will say what the de- deciding factor was for me was that Tarantino's films have a real easiness to them. The storylines are are usually pretty simple, and the characters just kind of pull you in, and you can really just sort of live in that world for for two and a half hours. And this one with all the sort of particularities about what they're doing with the money and the drugs and sort of who's double crossing who. I'm not saying that it's hard to follow. Like it's, it's not put together. Well, it's just, it doesn't have that kind of, I could put it on and just sort of relax into it. Um, quality that I like in a lot of other Tarantino films for, for me, obviously. That's fair. I, I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I can't fault you for that. Um, I, uh, I do have it at uh, number one. Wow. Um, That just shows you this list is going to be crazy lopsided. Um, And and I can't wait to see where everything averages out because uh, I think we're all going to have very disparate opinions. I think Uh, so too. Yeah. But this is, this is my number one. First, first Tarantino he saw in the theater. Number one. I love it. I fall in the middle of you two. And I, I, I toggled it around a bit, but for me, it came out at number six. And so that's two number ones off the board. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I, I don't think that should come as much of a surprise because he did. He does have some masterworks early on. He does. He does. And I feel like Pulp Fiction is, is an obvious choice. And Jackie Brown, for his maybe slightly more underappreciated films, I feel like Jackie Brown has a, a really big cult following in the sense of there are people that just fucking love it, like you, Nick. Yeah. So anyways, that was 97. Then we get a little bit of a gap. Six years, which brings us to 2003. Kill Bill Volume 1. The start of the Kill Bill series. Of course, Uma Thurman is the bride. We've got Daryl Hannah, Michael Madsen, Lucy Liu, Vivica A. Fox, David Carradine, Uma Thurman plays the bride. She's a former assassin. And so she wakes up from a coma four years after on her wedding day, her and everyone else that was there were killed. Or in her case, they attempted to kill her. She's the only person that lived. 
so all she wants is revenge on the people that tried to kill her, which was Bill and some other assassins. So the bride starts on her revenge train, and uh, it's quite the violent affair that we get, and and that is Kill Bill Volume One. What uh, what did you what did you boys think of this one, Nick? You start us off here. You know, this one is uh, for me another one that uh, I was in college when I saw this. This was, you know, a a gorgeous movie. It has such an impact culturally, um, you know, from a design standpoint, it's a big, big action movie, such a shift in tone for Tarantino. Um, But it is ultimately the, the setup to this movie. And uh, whether intentionally or not, it, it is very thin on character um but it does have some gorgeous action and really sets things up sets up a second half that and we'll get to it obviously but sets things up really really well for an emotional payoff in the second half um so i think when you look at it on its own just a a movie that again has a massive legacy in, in terms of its cultural impact um but and maybe even a little overlooked because I think that, you know, whether it's the, her tracksuit um, or, or the, the fight in the club that, you know, it, 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 these things just, they, they echo through, through culture, but I don't know a lot, for a lot of people, like I completely forgot about the anime sequence in this movie until I rewatched it. I did as well. Um, I, I think that there were just things that maybe haven't, that this movie as a whole, as a narrative, like isn't as celebrated as it should be i want to say that i also forgot about the anime sequence and it and it's fantastic but you want to know it's very funny and i know that we're not i mean it's very hard to talk about one without talking about the other there's two kill bills quentin himself has you know he just wants it to be watched as one full movie but they're broken up this way so when i initially saw these films in theater, I actually wasn't that hot on volume one. I I got out of it. I was a bit disappointed. I thought it was just a bit thin overall. And then I saw two and I really liked two. And I thought, you know, it it fleshed out the characters a lot more. And in this rewatch, I found it really interesting. I found them to be much, much closer for me in, in how much I liked them and I actually realized a lot of things I really like about one. I, for me, the Kill Bill series in general, it's not like my favorite brand of Tarantino, but I really respect and enjoy the films. I feel like what he was going for, he finds this insane way to blend like four or five different tones that he is going for and it just works but yeah i think volume one works really well as just a sort of action pick there's some there's some great characters in there i think both lucy Liu's character and vivica fox's i love i love those confrontations and the anime sequence great also love what's his name hanzo hattori hanzo Yeah, he's great too. So yeah, I I enjoyed Kill Bill Volume One quite a bit in the rewatch. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is the first one I saw in theaters. Uh, it's and, and I loved it then, and I I still love it now. I mean, I, it is 
it's not super high on my list. Um, it's it's lacking. I mean, it's it's half of a movie, right? Which is right. kind of hard to, you know, that's the thing. You've both said it. There's less character development in this one. You're getting that payoff in the second one, but this one is just so jam packed with action that it's just super fun, and and you know the creation of a character that that is, you know, very easy to root for, and then you you know kind of where you're going with it um, later on, obviously, but. Yeah, it's just super fun. I, I love that he kind of brought this martial arts genre. I mean, this is definitely one of the biggest martial arts films that's ever been released in America. Um, and it's, it's cool that he did it. And and like you said, it's, uh, Nick, like you said, it's really, really iconic, um, probably more than it gets credit for. And I think since I'm since I'm last here, I will, you know, start us off with the, the rankings. And it, for me, is at number six. Yeah, I, I have got it at number seven. I have it at number eight. So I feel like without further ado, let's just jump over to Kill Bill Volume 2, which came out a year later, 2004. Same cast. So yeah, this finishes up Kill Bill Volume 1, and the bride continues her quest to kill everyone that has wronged her, ending with Bill, of course. And uh, that's what we get in this one. So I'll just lead off on this. I actually was slightly let down with volume two in my rewatch because I liked it so much when the the last time I had seen it. I think the Kill Bills are actually possibly the only movies of his that I hadn't seen since my initial like watches in the theater back in the day. So I I think for me, Mike, you said it best with volume one. It's half of a film. Together it's it's epic but as two halves the first one has a lot of the action the second one has a lot more of the dialogue and some character building if i'm looking at them as two separate films i enjoyed the conciseness of volume one more than volume two although i will say i love the uh pad padme padme the all the training scenes with him I think are hysterical and I love as well as the final 30 minutes or so with Bill which I think has just some fantastic dialogue and some great acting by both David Carradine and Uma Thurman again two halves of a film it's hard for me to rank these as high as some of the other films that just feel more complete as one film uh, oh yeah, so I I think yeah, this one for me is it's definitely close because this delivers something a little bit different than the first one, um, but I I do have it a little bit lower. Um, I just find that the you know we get the whole background on Lucy Liu's character in the first one, and that's good. We don't get a full background of Vivica A. Fox, but we get you know a really nice moment um, that says a lot about her character with with very little screen time, and then here it's like, you know we don't really know much about Daryl Hannah because besides that, she's like kind of a, a bad person and, and same, same really for Michael Madsen. Right. I mean, we don't get a lot about them to, to love. So I think getting those backstories and kind of seeing how they play out, is just a little bit less exciting. Do really, really like um, kind of everything that it goes with, with Bill. Um, but overall, I just think it, it doesn't quite deliver as much as the first one. And that's really interesting to hear you guys have that take because this one to me is Kill Bill Volume 2 has can almost, in my mind, stand on its own. You need a little bit of preface from Volume 1 
to really be able to enjoy this movie in full. And I think that it's funny because there's they were released a full year apart. I, I'm not sure. It may have been a little bit more than a year. Um, but they you can tell that there were reshoots, that, that they went back and, and that, you know, number two was not, uh, you know, a little bit responsive to what people thought about volume one. And from the get-go where Uma Thurman in black and white is driving in the car and is talking about the marketing materials for volume one, like the movie is very self-aware and makes some adjustments that uh, in, in terms of character, this one is so emotional from top to bottom compared to volume one. Um, it, it's just, it, it's the closest thing probably for a Tarantino relationship movie um, between Bill and the bride. And it just has something really, especially in the third act uh, when she get, when she meets up with Bill that is just so unique for Tarantino and genuine for Tarantino. Um, it is, uh, it's, I, I think it's excellent. I think it really does something that few, uh, yeah, the few other of his movies do. It's so tough. Like, I do agree with some of what you said there. I just think, again, for me, maybe it was just the mood I was in on this rewatch, but it's so hard for me because as one long movie, I think it's fantastic. But as two pieces, that's the one thing for me. I don't know. It's. It is missing a little something. It, it's not just a movie on its own for me. I do agree about it's something different for Tarantino, especially in this relationship aspect aspect between the bride and Bill. And that final act is fantastic. There's greatness in there. But I don't know. It's just not that high for me. Mike, where do you have it? Uh, so I have it at number seven. I have it at number four. I have it at number nine. Ooh. That's that feels huh. low, but like we said, I mean something's gonna have yeah, to be. You down torpedoed the it there. <laughs> <laughs> Very tough. <sighs> okay. From the Kill Bill series, take us a few years down the road to 2007, when a little movie called Death Proof came out, packaged as Grindhouse originally along with a Robert Rodriguez film, Planet Terror, and some fake trailers in between. But Death Proof was Tarantino's. It's got Kurt Russell as Stuntman Mike. You have Zoe Bell, who plays herself, typically a stuntwoman. Rosario Dawson, Rose McGowan, and uh, the plot of Death Proof. Stuntman Mike, he's a professional stuntman, a body double, this is set up, this is a Grindhouse film. So Tarantino is trying to emulate the Grindhouse films of the past. It's supposed to be a B-movie. And essentially, it's about stuntman Mike, who likes to take unsuspecting women for deadly drives. And things spiral out a bit from there. So, Mike, t- take us into Death Proof. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's cool that Tarantino did, did a slasher. Um, I mean, I think the whole Grindhouse project is a really interesting idea um, for both of, both directors um, at the time. Love that Kurt Russell gets brought into the fold. Um, obviously, we'll see him again later. Uh, I pretty much love all the all the female characters in this movie, and, and I like the way that it plays out. You know, you get Tarantino as the bartender, which is hilarious. You know, he brings in Eli, Eli Roth, who obviously appears in a couple of films as well. 
And I would say that I like this film a lot, but on rewatch, and I'd seen it pretty recently, I should mention, but on rewatch, I found the kind of repeat structure of it it felt a little bit slow in the middle because you're just sort of rewatching the the same story play out. And obviously, you know, it has a great ending, but I, I just kind of wish that there was a little bit more variation um, between the two, but I, I do still like this one for sure. Yeah, for me, this one was, and, and, and it has to be told in context. So I saw this one in the theater uh, at the Grove uh, as part of Grindhouse and that experience uh, on opening weekend was not great. Um, I really did not like Planet Terror, and the audience was exhausted by the time that uh, that Death Proof came on. Um, it, it's it's hard to 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 watch the two hour version and think about it as part of this Grindhouse movie because in my mind the two hour version, while it's got its flaws, it, it's also a ton of fun. Like as a as its own standalone movie, um, the second half with uh you know them filming in tennessee and you know the the stunt women uh going after stuntman mike it's i, I think it's a female empowerment story, like a surprising female empowerment story in the middle of a you know of, of tarantino's movies that really doesn't is is rare but god those action sequences are just a ton of fun i couldn't agree more so I'm going to get I I need to also bring it back to when Grindhouse hit theaters. I actually had the opposite experience of you, Nick, at the theater, Hmm. which was the theater that I went to when I saw it was was quite busy. Everyone was just going nuts and really enjoyed Planet Terror, really enjoyed the fake trailers in between. And then Death Proof started and I feel like the energy puttered out a bit. When I first saw it, I remember I was I was a little disappointed in Death Proof, a little bit, but I still had a lot of fun with it. I just I had liked the other parts of Grindhouse more. Fast forward to me seeing the standalone two hour version and similar to you, Nick, holy shit, it is a lot of fun. As much as I loved the Grindhouse experience and I've watched it in that form multiple times and enjoyed it, I actually like watching it even more as a as a singular film because it like you said the action sequences are so much fun the entire car chase in you know towards the climax is just unbelievable and kurt russell stuntman mike one of my favorite roles of his quentin as the bartender in the first half he always loves to insert himself into the films one of my favorites is him in this one some great dialogue i just i think especially on this rewatch this week for probably his film that gets the most flack. And and there are some critiques for it. It might be one of the most fun to just rewatch and rewatch. I can rewatch this one a lot and it is definitely his, his biggest moment of female empowerment, the second half of this film. So without further ado, what do you got this one at? Yeah. So I, I will say that I, I do like this a lot. I agree with what you guys said. The stunt driving in the second half is, is awesome. And it's cool to see, you know, things done impractical, obviously in front of the camera, but something, something had to be number 10. And for me, it's death proof. Wow. That hurts me inside my Ooh, friend. Wow. A lot of Tarantino fanboys will probably agree with you, but I think you're fucking dead wrong. My friend, <laughs> I've got it at number five. 
Yeah, so do I. I've got it at number five. Um, uh, yeah, it is. It is really high on the rewatchability level as a standalone movie. Um, the second half is. I mean, and you also have to realize that this was created just as a simple storytelling exercise. This is not a super complex, rich, fully developed movie. You know, being fleshed out the way that it was. Yeah, I think it works totally on its own as something different and special. I totally agree. And the only reason for me that I honestly didn't have it higher was for the fact that the fact that it is something just very fun and very singular in what it is to a degree. Whereas there's other films that are much more expansive, but it's like, it is one of the most fun films of his. It's just, I, it had to be within my top five. All right. Two years later down the road, 2009, we get to Inglorious Bastards. Brad Pitt joins the Quentin Tarantino universe. We've got Eli Roth, who just showed up in Death Proof. Christoph Waltz making his grand debut here. Diane Kruger, Michael Fassbender. We've got a Mike Myers cameo. Uh, and Inglorious Bastards, it's set during World War II. It's the first year of Germany's occupation of France. And Brad Pitt is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, who assembles a team of Jewish soldiers that call themselves the Bastards to kill as many Nazis as they can. That's that's where I'm going to start with it. There's obviously a lot more to the plot, but that's a good little intro for you. Nick, take us into Inglorious Bastards. I mean, that's, it's an interesting way to go about framing the movie because the Bastards really have little to do with... Uh, a lot of the first two thirds of the, of, of the story. Um, look, this one is, has always sat very uh, uncomfortably with me because uh, although there's some really immaculate performances from the acting, uh, you know, on the acting side um, and, and there's really good high tension, the movie does something with, look, it's, it's grounded within you know, it's not grounded, but it's Tarantino's version of a very gritty, plausible historical fiction. And this movie goes about that pace where, you know, nothing ridiculous happens until it becomes, uh, you know what it is? Until the David Bowie song in the movie theater in the third act, the movie goes off the rails and becomes really, really hard to watch in my eyes because everything from that point on is really self-indulgent filmmaking dabbles with historical fantasy all of a sudden that you've never touched on before this um, by killing off people who didn't die that way. And I just think it's all for the emotional satisfaction of the viewer and really doesn't motive. It doesn't really satisfy the characters. Um, and I've always had trouble with that. Uh, and, and this wow. is not a movie that I love at all. Um, it's a very controversial opinion on my part. But uh, I, I think that what he did with the historical fantasy in the third act was completely unmotivated, unnecessary, uh, and threw me both the first time I watched it and, uh, you know, first time I watched it in the theater and when I rewatched it the other day um, and, and finally realized that it's that fucking David Bowie song that just really doesn't sit well with me. Oh, my God. Um, 
And yeah, no, not one of my favorite Tarantino movies at all. This is, listen to the conviction in this man's voice. No, I've had this conversation a number of times with a number of different people, and it always is very combative. Yeah, I could not disagree more. When I saw Inglorious Bastards in the theater, I walked out. I think I stood up and clapped at the end. I absolutely loved it. The I thought that it was Tarantino's ultimate return to form. Insanely incredible dialogue like Pulp Fiction set in this completely different landscape. The opening scene of this is one of my favorite opening scenes in the history of film. I think it's unbelievable. Christoph Waltz is insane in this. This brought him to American movie screens. And I mean, he's he is a force within the Tarantino universe after this, even if he had only done this and he he did more. But uh, yeah, and I think Brad Pickle, I think everyone just does such a good job in this. There's so many memorable scenes like the scene in the bar with, you know, with Bridget von Hammersmark and three of our guys and then some German soldiers, just the entire the way the entire plot comes together and the different chapters. I feel like of the entire watch this week, this was my favorite rewatch. I just had such a blast. I thought that it was a a filmmaker at the top of his game and the ending with this just might be my masterpiece. I just fucking love it. I cannot rave about this film more. Yeah, this is definitely masterpiece number two for me from Tarantino. Uh, you guys have said a lot, but I think you know Christoph Waltz is amazing. I think Fassbender is great. Even Diane Kruger is super good. And I love, I love what Brad Pitt is doing. You know, he's not really evoking sort of any specific characters. He's just being so sort of extra, which adds humor to. You know, a film about Nazis, which is incredibly dark. Um, and then the end, yeah, the end for me is just phenomenal. I, I think, Agreed. you know, there's it, it does provide release for Shoshana, maybe not anybody else per se, but even if it is, you know, effectively masturbatory filmmaking, specifically just for the audience, it's fucking great. It's exactly <laughs> what I want to happen. Fuck Nazis. It just blows Ooh. the whole shit up. Yes, I love it. I, I speak the best Italian. So I will be your escort. As I said, third most. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right, let's let's do the rankings. All right, Mike, what do you have it at? I have this at number three. Uh, you know, I, this is the one that I'm going to torpedo because of uh, the way I feel about this one. I've got it at number nine. How dare you? Well, there it is. I'm going to try to bring it back up because I've got it at number two. Okay, nice. I think we might have saved it. I think you guys pulled it out a little bit, but uh, j- just to just to be clear about this, I, look, there are things about this movie that are undeniably great, um, and and up until that scene, I, I'm serious. Up until the David Bowie song, I love this movie, and then something twists in my head, something goes off in my head, and it is just unforgivable in my mind. So, sorry. Okay. I mean, okay. all right. we all we all are allowed to have opinions. Unfortunately, everyone is allowed to have opinions. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we move on from Inglorious Bastards 
to 2012's Django Unchained, starring Jamie Foxx's Django. We have Christoph Waltz reappearing. We have the one and only Leonardo DiCaprio making his Tarantino debut as Calvin Candy. We have Kerry Washington and, of course, Samuel L. Jackson, as well as some other notable people that pop up. Jonah Hill's in a scene and uh, a couple a couple other great actors pop up here and there. James, James Remar, I believe, MC Ganey. It is about Django, who's a slave, and a German bounty hunter named Dr. King Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz. He ends up buying Django, and he wants him to accompany him to help capture or kill the Brittle brothers, who are these brothers that he has found out that Django knows what they look like. And so from there... Schultz sort of takes Django under his wing, frees him, and they are on a mission to uh, get back Django's wife, who is being held as a slave by Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And that's the general plotline of Django. Nick, what do you think about Django? Well, I just want to say from the outset that, look, there is something you know, troubling about the fact that Tarantino uses slavery as a you know setting for uh, what is otherwise a very archetypal story um and probably one of the few times that tarantino uses true storytelling archetypes um try you know tries to use that basically Django's a man of valor rescuing a princess um so the fact that he and and with that said it's it works really really well but there are, in retrospect, some troubling things about the fact that a white director does do that. Um, that said, there are some really incredible performances in this. Um, it is, you know, nothing about slavery is glossed over or made um, made to be more palatable. This is a very cruel, harsh movie, but it is. Uh, it also manages to be massively entertaining. Um, so for as troubling as it is, you know, the, the, the characters are just so engaging and so rich, uh, and everything's so well motivated. I mean, it's, yeah, it's an incredible movie. DiCaprio is, DiCaprio and Waltz are just, you know, really, really, uh, phenomenal in this. I couldn't agree more. Waltz just carrying on from his amazing performance in Inglorious in that, you know, he's he's the bad guy in this. He is more he's more of a good guy. And I just love the relationship between him and Jamie Foxx in this. I feel like they play off each other really well. And Leonardo DiCaprio, if you know me, you know, he's my favorite actor. Seeing him take a villain role for once and to be in a Tarantino film, you know, one of my favorite directors of all time was just an absolute treat and he kills it. He's he's so good. And Samuel also is absolutely outrageous in this. Sam I cackle at Samuel lines throughout this. He is just ridiculous. And I just think the entire movie from start to finish, I think it's some of his most well-crafted work. It's entertaining through and through. 
there's great characters um the pace is very good it it moves and moves and moves despite being almost three hours long and i mean it's tarantino's take on a spaghetti western and i think he absolutely kills it just a great movie yeah uh, i also i I like this a lot um you know you mentioned that we get to root for christoph waltz's character after you know obviously hating him and inglorious and it's awesome that he brings those you know kind of similar eccentricities to this role um this samuel is fantastic in it obviously leo is great all the time um it is this is funnier than i remembered for being so dark and i will definitely say that you know i i had to visibly turn away from the screen several times when watching this that i can't remember doing for any film in a while um and i and i also was very i don't know i kind of wonder how this would play if it came out like 2 years ago versus 2012 cuz cuz even i felt like a little bit of release from sort of the racial tension from watching this now, but I can't even imagine, you know, with things kind of as they are, how this would be now. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can make this movie today. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. Cause it's only, it's not even a t- decade old. Right. <laughs> right. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is a, uh, and I will say, I'll, you know, I'm the last one to go. So I'll start us off here. This is, it jumped up my list a bunch over the course of the week and I landed with it at four. Yeah, I, I've got it. Look, I struggled with this one. I, I've got it at number six, but I do think that it it certainly has some of... Uh, th- there are some things about this movie that are really uh, stand out amongst his other movies. And I've got it at number three. So from there, we go another three years to 2015, The Hateful Eight, which stars, of course... Samuel L. Jackson. Then we've got Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Bruce Dern. Big cast here. Hatefully, what it's about is a bounty hunter played by Kurt Russell, uh, John Ruth, and his prisoner, who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee, heading towards the town of Red Rock where he is going to deliver her to the hangman there. It's this crazy blizzard. They pick up a few, a couple people along the way and they stop at this haberdashery and they take refuge there. And there's already a few other people staying there. And it sort of becomes almost like a Tarantino version of clue. Would you guys say that's a somewhat accurate plot assessment? Uh, yeah, I was going to say this is the sort of Western version of Reservoir Dogs. Oh, yeah, that's probably a better a better way to put it. Anywho, what do you guys think about it? Uh, yeah, so I will say that Hateful Eight, I, I'd only seen this once before. Um, I know there's been a lot of, well, hate for it. I hate that I had to say that, but sorry. There's been a lot of hate <laughs> for it. Um, and it is, I, I still enjoy it. Um, I, I think I like the first act the most personally, but I like the idea you know, I like a lot of the different characters. He brings back, you know, so many of his guys um, as Jennifer Jason Lee. And and I love that Channing Tatum gets thrown in there. It's it's a really ballsy choice. But but overall, it's it's pretty long for what you really get out of it. You know, it seems to be focused a lot on kind of what it's presenting in terms of camera work. And it's it's a lot 
there's a lot less charm that you get from other Tarantino films. So I do like it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's slow and long for what you actually get out of it in the end. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. It is slow and it is long. Um, look, it is artfully well, uh, you know, made as a film, but, uh, just to give it a little bit of context. Um, and, and I don't think you can remove this from, from what we get. Tarantino conceived of this idea, this story, as a sequel novel to Django. Um, he then wrote it as a screenplay that he wanted uh, Jennifer Lawrence to star in. Jennifer Lawrence passed on the movie, so they couldn't get Jamie Foxx back. It no longer became a Django sequel. And it is much like uh, The Dark Knight Rises is for Christopher Nolan. This is a patchwork movie that when the original plan didn't come together, the movie just falters. The, the movie loses its its charm and its thread and it just becomes a patchwork of ideas that he clearly wanted to do but not fully developed characters i i absolutely hate this movie this movie to me is like roger like north is to roger ebert i hated 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 (laughs) this movie i am insulted Uh, i i you know what's the quote uh yeah, hated the sensibility that anyone would like it and hated the implied insult to the audience by the belief that anyone would be entertained by it. I think this is a very, like just the fact that this one made it to the finish line is Tarantino never should have done this and someone should have talked him out of it. Um, Don't like this movie. Don't like this movie. Don't think it should have been made. think it should have been left in the barn. Wow. When, uh, yeah. I don't think there's really much redeeming about it whatsoever outside of the craft that went into the production design of this movie. I don't think he likes the movie. I think he might not like the movie. Don't like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sound good. Oh, Hateful Eight, Hateful Eight. You know what? I like Hateful Eight. I think... I, uh, you know, I think that here's what I'll say about Hateful Eight. It is, it is no doubt long for what you get. There are a couple scenes that drag. What I love. A couple. A couple. couple. Look, when I said that I sort of think of this to a degree as Tarantino's version of Clue, which I know isn't completely on the mark, but I'm thinking of people contained to one house and there's a mystery to be solved and again yes it's like his western reservoir dogs but here's what i like about hateful eight while there are certain flaws to it it builds one of the richest landscapes for me for my imagination i love the world that it takes place in i really like the characters that they come up with i think there's a couple missteps in there But I really like what Tarantino's going for with this. And I love Walton Goggins. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's incredible in this. Him and Samuel, I think, are both great. I I really actually think everyone is just great in this. As I watch it, yes, slightly draggier than other Tarantino films. But I also just like love the world building. And, and, and that's what's incredible to me is they're just in this one fucking cabin. Yet I feel like based on the tales they're telling, I can envision the entire world 
And I, I really like that about this. And, and look, just just to speak on that, and I'm sorry to sorry to interject, but I do want to say that the reason you feel that way is because it is the environment is a post-slavery Django. Of course you love it. I mean, there's every reason to, to feel that way, but it is not post-slavery Django. It is it is this other abomination. <laughs> well, let me say also, I love the ending of this film. I think it's one of the most hopeful Tarantino endings that there is. Even though spoiler alert, everyone is going to be dead. The two guys that you thought never were going to work together end up coming together, putting aside their differences, and working together at the end. They reminisce over the fact that Samuel L. Jackson had to make up a letter from Lincoln <laughs> so that white people would perceive him as being more more affable. <laughs> I don't know if that's really a great takeaway at the end of this movie. <laughs> And by the way, that is an excellent that from a from a narrative standpoint, that's a great point and, and probably the only great story point that there is in the movie. Uh, but, but I hopeful, geez, I don't know if that's the right word. While <laughs> hanging a woman. While hanging a woman to death. Yeah. All right. Let's, I will I will start us off and say that for me it's number nine. And and frankly, I probably should have put that ten. I gotta be honest. Wow. Yeah, nine. Yeah, I don't think you have to guess where I have it. It's right at the bottom, right at number 10. Wow, wow, and wow. I've got it at number four. <laughs> That's too high. That is too high. Honestly, like, I was willing to go to bat a little bit, but, like, that's too high, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, now that we're talking it out, I might be regretting certain things. Well, <laughs> we locked it in at four. We Look, locked it in at four. Hey, that's why we're getting this on tape, though, is so, so that you can get all your regret out in the open. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, no, you know what? And and I, I'll stand by this. The reason I put it at four, while Death Proof is so much more fun for me, again, Hateful Eight, Tarantino tries some things that don't fully work, but I really like where he's trying to go, and I am giving him credit for that because... It's very interesting to me. Not one of my most rewatchable, but one that I think about a lot in his in in the scope of his films. All right, well, nine down. Now we're at we're at number ten. Two thousand and nineteen's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which of course has Leo and Brad Pitt. At the forefront, Margot Robbie, you've got Al Pacino in there, Bruce Dern, and some and, and a bunch of other great actors that show up. This one is a love letter to old school Hollywood. You've got Leo playing actor Rick Dalton, who starred in a famous Western TV show. But now he's sort of struggling a bit to find... The work that he wants in Hollywood. And so he's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a falling star. And Cliff Booth, who's played by Brad Pitt, is his best bud, his longtime stunt double. And it's it's sort of a slice of life movie. And Rick also, he happens to live next door to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate's played by Margot Robbie. And that plays into the plot line as... There's a little intersection with the Manson family. 
And that's what I'll say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let me take this one because there's something about this movie that works where Inglorious Bastards fail, and that's that it sets up in the title the fact that it is historical fantasy. And look, I will also add that Inglorious Bastards does try to do this by making the title of the first chapter Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France, but that doesn't really hold steady the way it does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which is... You know, Leo is so good in this, uh, but but the story itself plays with our expectations, plays with, uh, you know, what we uh, who, who we think these people are and, and what we expect them to do. But it ultimately does something in the way that it, it twists, you know, history uh, by adding something really satisfying for these characters, giving them a happy ending that we can assume otherwise in reality they would not have had uh, that we know they wouldn't have had for. Uh, for Sharon Tate and and ultimately for Polanski, but for for Rick and uh, Rick Dalton and uh, and Cliff, you know, we get something really satisfying by changing uh, what we understand to be history. Um, on the rewatchability level, I love this movie. I will have to say though that it, uh, I, I love this movie for the fact that it just has such a a really uh, personal feel to what, uh, you know, the, the era that Tarantino grew up with in Hollywood. Um, and to that end, I I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something very special and very personal clearly. Um, but he, uh, on the rewatchability level, there are a few scenes, um, particularly the spawn ranch, um, when we, uh, are introduced to Bruce Dern's character, um, that, you know, the, the, uh, the tension does not play the same way, uh, when Brad Pitt walks in to see if he's alive the first time, uh, the second, there's a very long sequence, uh, and knowing that he is alive, uh, watching that entire sequence, uh, plays very, very slow. That is my only real flaw with this movie. Well, without knowing how you guys felt, I was ready to go to bat for this, but I'm glad that you're, you're on the positive side. Cause this is masterpiece number three of Tarantino. And I could not love this film more. Uh, I've I've seen it already well over ten times. This is just incredible. I I the characters of Cliff and and Rick. I I mean I can't believe how well they're developed. I feel like I know them. I don't know why people are mad at the sort of day in the life angle of it. It's that that seems perfect for me. The life that he's able to bring to Sharon Tate, who's who's largely only known for this tragedy, and the way that Margot Robbie. I mean, basically it's floating on the screen she brings such levity to the movie obviously the ending is fantastic the soundtrack is amazing uh this uh, in terms of rewatchability like this is i just wish this was playing in the background every day of my life i am absolutely in love with this film right now me i i did struggle a bit with where i was going to put pulp fiction compared to this because obviously pulp has has stood the test of time but i i could not believe when people were sort of low on this film i was immediately saying this is an absolute masterpiece to the point that i i don't want tarantino to make any more films this is the absolute perfect film to end your career on and uh, yeah i could not be higher on this i had a really tough time because i i really like once upon a time in hollywood again leo's my favorite actor he's fucking great in this brad pitt steals the show he's just amazing And I do, I actually like the fact that it's a slice of life film and there's a ton, there's a bunch of scenes that I love. And as you know, Nick and I both live in LA, there's obviously a lot that 
we even maybe understand deeper than than the next person just in terms of spots that they go to but like i really enjoy this movie when i first saw it in theaters i was slightly let down just because leo is my favorite actor brad pitt is one of the other greatest actors and pairing them together with qt just seemed like a knockout and and it's not my favorite tarantino but i watched it a second time in theaters and I'd say that I, I enjoyed it even more. And I've seen it since then again. And I think for me, I disagree with you a little bit, Mike, because I while I definitely think I agree with you that it could just be playing in the background, but I can't rewatch it a ton where my 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 attention is invested in it. I feel like two times was good for me. But then after that, it's like, it is a slice of life movie and I know I like the world that they're in, but I personally would rather go to somewhere like Inglorious Bastards or the Hateful Eight that's like a a bit more fantasy. Yeah, you'd rather revisit the Holocaust. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it's your words, Tim. Dear Lord. <laughs> dear fucking Lord. Well, when you put it like that, but shit, no, I just like, I like sort of revisiting, not a fantasy world. These aren't fantasy worlds, but just, just, they feel more foreign to me. Like live, obviously, yes, you're transported to, you know, 1969 Hollywood, which is awesome. But I don't know. There's just, there's something that in the rewatches don't do it for me where I just, it doesn't have the rewatchability for me that something like Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards or Django has for me. So it's tough. I, my four through seven, I toggled with all week and I, I just could not figure out where to place what, but I ended up putting once upon a time at number seven. Well, I think we already know for me, it's number one. Yeah. And for me, it's number three, which is, uh, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's a great movie. It is. And I want to make it clear, though, because I really do enjoy it. Four through seven for me are all very close. My top three, there's no question. But four through seven were tough. I guess on that, let's let's recap our individual top fives now that we've reached the end of the filmography. Yes. Mike, start us off. All right. For me, it's five Reservoir Dogs, four Django, three Inglorious Bastards, two Pulp Fiction, and one Once Upon a Time. Uh, for me, number five was uh, Death Proof. Uh, number four was Kill Bill Volume 2. Uh, coming in at number three, I had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two uh, was Pulp Fiction, and number one was Jackie Brown. Awesome. And my number five was Death Proof. My number four, The Hateful Eight. Number three, Django Unchained, number two, Inglorious Bastards, and number one, Pulp Fiction. So it's time. The definitive top five Quentin Tarantino films list. At number five, Jackie Brown. Number four, Inglorious Bastards. Number three, Django Unchained. Number two, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And number one, Pulp Fiction. I feel pretty good about that list. Yeah, I'm. I'm really satisfied with the top two. 
um, you know, even after doing this, uh, this con- having this conversation with you guys, I, I really feel like those are two of his finer movies. I feel really good about the the overall top five. I think those. I wish Inglorious was higher, personal opinion, but I think those five. Like, if there were five films, it's like, all right, you have to watch five Tarantino films. I think those are the five that I would probably tell someone to watch to get a good overall taste of him. Yeah, for me, I mean, my top four are the top four here, not in the same order. So obviously, I feel great about that. And number five, even though I'm the one that tried to bring Jackie Brown down, I'm glad it's number five. I really like that film. uh, And I felt bad about where it was anyway. So yeah, that's a, a great one to, like you said, if you're going to watch five you have to throw jackie brown in there because it's it offers something a bit different mm-hmm. for sure than anything else on our top top five list i i just just to really uh illustrate how difficult this is you guys are saying that you would tell someone that if you wanted to understand quentin tarantino these are the five that you would make them watch and you would leave out kill bill that is just wild I, it's again i'm sorry to kill bill but it just doesn't quite do it for me Compared to tell you what, I mean the bottom five is a solid list as well. It is. I, I love them all. <laughs> it's like really, you just need to watch all ten. Is the real moral of the story, and it's yeah. I mean, even looking back at my list now, it's like I'm having my classic moments, and I'm just panicking, just panicking, just being like, oh man, you should have put this one here. You should have put that one there. Like. It's so hard to rank this guy's films because they're all fucking great. Something else that's wild, guys. Looking at the numbers here, Hateful Eight and Reservoir Dogs are uh, both equally at the... They're, they're tied for 9 and 9A uh, in terms of uh, the bottom. Of the that's list. fucked up. That's not, that's not cool. <laughs> I don't feel good about that. I mean, I don't feel good about any of these films being, being put at the bottom of anything. Yeah, this this was a tough one to do. This was a, a f- filmmaking uh, Sophie's choice. So, uh, but we we did our duty. We made our choice, and uh, and these are the results we're given. And I feel pretty damn good about it, boys. I think we we did the best with what we could do. Yeah, I mean, I tr- I really tried to bring Inglorious Bastards down, but I can only do so much. <laughs> yeah, you really did. I mean, everyone Inglorious is really number two. We all know how it goes. All right, there we go. Cool. <laughs> No, but seriously, thanks for coming on the journey with us. And 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 Nick, thank oh, this you. Is my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Because we we needed another Tarantino fanatic and you, my friend, filled the role very well. I, I'm glad that I was able to at least bring some strong opinions and uh and bring that to the conversation. Yeah, you really got a problem with Hateful Eight there. And Inglorious Bastards. Well, anywho, for everyone listening, we'd love to hear your take on Tarantino's films. Let us know if you agree with the overall list, if any of us are crazy for where we've put anything. And uh, you know where to find us. Instagram at Top Fives and Deep Dives. Twitter at Top Dives. You can email us, Top Fives and Deep Dives at gmail.com. And uh, this has been a hell of a week. I I don't even know what else to say. So we're just going to roll it out with Zach's beautiful voice. And we'll see you guys next week. Peace. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM.
like the movie.